0: I am Philip Adams, and this is Terminal Exchange, and today we've got with us Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman is our After Hours Operations Manager here at Neusbaum. Uh Chris started out as a driver uh, with us, drove with us for about a year, right Chris? Yes, sir. Uh, and then uh, you um, applied to come into the office, you were looking for some, so basically an office position, mm-hmm. and uh, you came in to fill an uh, After Hours mm-hmm. role in operations. Mm-hmm. Yes. and Apparently, uh, I mean, I didn't work with Chris directly on this, but um, I'm guessing you must have done a decent job there. You've now taken over. Uh, uh, you know, you over, oversee that department mm-hmm. or that part of the operations. So uh, excellent to, to have you and your team uh, doing what you do. Uh, so if you're ever... Um, you know, out there, it's after hours late in the evening, overnight, the weekend time. Um, mm-hmm. Chris or one of uh, his team there are probably the ones you're talking to. Absolutely. So how's that been going for you? I mean, how how you liking uh, the after hours stuff and that kind of, that's a different dynamic a little bit than
1: being, you know, regular day hours. Definitely, definitely. Um, I actually find it a lot of fun. I think it's really very fulfilling, too. Part of what happens after hours is you wind up having touching just about every other department. You're not necessarily mm-hmm. yeah. dealing quite as specifically with your own tasks. Like a DM is typically mostly managing the drivers and safety is taking care of their things and et cetera, et cetera. But for us, we wind up really touching every area of that. And sometimes we're doing it at, you know, twenty two hundred when there's no one else that's awake. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talk to the new drivers about you know, making sure they know that there is somebody to reach out to and that they're not alone. And, you know, those are, those are the times that often we have the most challenge as drivers. It's at the end of the day or the very, very beginning and you're tired or you're just getting awake and, and it seems like you're all by yourself and something and it can be super frustrating and just a good thing to remember that you're not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I, I remember back to my days. Uh, so when I first started here, I did work operations and part of my job was working, um, on call on the weekends. Mm-hmm. It was just the weekends, not uh, the rest of the week. Um, but yeah, dealing with, uh, it, it's, it's a more stressful time at that point. There is less, fewer resources available to you, mm-hmm. uh, all over, whether it's in the company or out, you know, out on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so I totally get the the dealing
1: yeah.
0: kind of working with other departments, whether it's maintenance or uh, safety things. I mean, things happen, mm. and it's always mm. unexpected. That's right. Um, you just never know. It, mm-hmm. you have the the phrase "It's trucking." Uh, That's right. <laughs> if it yeah. can happen, it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. Uh, but yep. uh, but we're, we're yeah we're really glad to have you have you in here. Um, uh, what actually brought you in off the road uh, specifically?
1: Um, a pregnant wife.
0: That'll do it. That'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. You have a son now. uh, Yes. Jeremiah, is it right? Uh, Yes. And he's about a year and a half.
1: He's eight. Yep. Almost 18 months. Okay. Yes, that's right. And, and I, uh, I have a beautiful and classic trucker story. Um, so it was March, uh, of 18 at this point or 19, no March of 19. And I was in just outside of Huntsville, Alabama just ran out of my 70. I wasn't gonna make it home to Nashville, Tennessee. It's Friday night and, you know, make the call, sorry, babe, not gonna make it home. You know, I hear the country music in the background right now. <laughs> and sorry, babe, not gonna make it home. If you wanna see me, you're gonna have to come. And so she did. She drove down from Nashville to Huntsville and we, the plan was just to spend the weekend together and then she was gonna go back. But she had been riding full time with me up to that point. Okay. And, but she was just back in town to take care of some few things. Let me have like a two week stint out on my own. And so she got in late on Friday and I was already asleep in the bunk. So she crawled up in her bunk and woke up in the morning and I went inside for, you know, a little bit of breakfast and a morning shower and all that. And I step out of the shower and on the sink is a stuffed animal, a pilot coffee (laughs) and a pregnancy test. And that's how I found out I was going to have a son. What was your reaction? Uh, I looked at her and was like, well, I have no idea what to say. And that was like, I'm a person that usually has something to say. So she knew she got me. (laughs) And I was thrilled. So I grabbed her and hugged her and, and cried and was super excited, but then realized I did not want to be on the road when he was born. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing I could imagine at that moment was to be 600 miles away and she was in labor and I couldn't do a thing about it. So I called Jeremy, I think that week Really? and was like, Jeremy, um, first, this is really good news. Okay, cool. We're pregnant. Congratulations. Yeah, sort of. That was kind of what I said <laughs> because I'm like this means I'm not going to be driving when he's born. So mm-hmm. I, we need to figure out something. And I didn't want to leave the company and I didn't want to drive local. I've I've done that. I've done, you know, home daily type of local driving yeah. and it's not all it's cracked up to be. It, it's work. It, I mean, it's it's yeah. a lot of work and I did not want to do that. Um, so I, I said, is there anything that y'all have that i could do and he had you know my resume he understood what my qualifications were and he said well let me think about it but have you ever thought about doing third shift and i was like well i've not ever worked third shift explicitly Mm -hmm. i mean i've worked on the farm i've done 110 hour weeks right so i understand what it feels like to work at 3am but i've never had it in my job that i'm purposefully working right. at 3 a.m., you know, every single day. It's the weirdos that work at that time, right? That's right, man. There's some <laughs> real weird cats that are up at that time. And um, so I was like, but, you know, for you, for bomb yes. So he said, well, um, let me get back to you on that. And about a month later, I followed up and he said, yes, we actually do have a third shift operations position that's going to be open and we'd love for you to come in and interview for it. So they scheduled me through and I interviewed. And I think a couple weeks later they said, hey, let's do it again, uh, came through and they're like, well, we think we're probably gonna offer you the job. Um, so that means moving you up here and, and et cetera, et cetera. Because Kinda, uh, home, my home, was, was Nashville, home was Nashville, right? Tennessee yeah. still, yes. And home had been home to my wife for 10 years. That mm. was Nashville, Tennessee was her home that's where all of her friends were. Her connections were. Um, I had moved down there originally from central Indiana because when I first met her and started dating her, I told her I was moving down to marry her and she didn't believe me.
0: <laughs> and I
1: said, well, I'm coming. You better believe me. She figured it out. She figured it out. And so I did. And, but it wasn't home to me. Yeah. Central sure. that, you know, Midwest was my home. Yeah. And so this was a comfortable environment for me, but not for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a pretty tough transition, How's honestly. It? Yeah, it really has. Um, but she, we were thankful for the position and, and for the opportunity. So we were moved up here. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very, very pregnant or she was great with child. as The Bible <laughs> said, right? Perfect. And uh, but she came and we got ready for him, for Jeremiah to to be born. I started third shift, and he was born in November, November seventeenth. That's awesome. Of nineteen. And
0: now a yep. year and a half. I now. assume he's all over the place, walking and doing more sure everything, into yeah. everything. Yeah, he checking loves. It all out.
1: Yeah, he loves to climb. He loves. I mean, we're gonna have to. Keep, he has zero fear. Oh, he, they, where they were just down I in got Nashville. Those kids. Yeah, <laughs> they were just down in Nashville for a visit, and. They were in a hotel and chanel stood him on the bed and he was just kind of standing there being all peaceful and she looked over came back and he was already all the way across the bed jumping off the bed <laughs> yeah. and hit the hit the corner table on the way down oh, no. and smacked on the floor Oh! <laughs> she's like yeah yeah
0: i i have a uh, broken fan blade ceiling fan blade um from one of my children thinking that, I guess, I assume they thought they could hang off of it. I wasn't there present when it happened, uh, but they did it off of a bunk bed in their bedroom. Uh, yes. And, uh, which I knew was, I, I didn't like that there was the fan there and I'd, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I know all about no fear. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to tell you it gets better uh, <laughs> as I get older, but, yeah. mm-hmm. I, Probably that hasn't been not. my experience yet. Yeah. Not, not at least, yeah. uh, my, my youngest is one with the mm-hmm. least amount of fear there. So you said, though, that you, so your wife is, has struggled in in some mm-hmm. of this transition. So mm-hmm. does she actually, is her family then based in Nashville uh, there for, where she, she didn't grow up in Nashville. No. But but does she have family or just, is she plugged just in? Just really close friends. Okay. Yeah.
1: She actually grew up in Redding, California. Okay um, Bethel Church was her home church. okay, like the Bethel Church. Yeah, yeah. and so she was used to huge crowd and and a very specific worship style, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And but she left Reading to kind of make her own way in Nashville. She is a musician, she is a artist, and that she really felt like that was a, a good place for her to go and felt the Lord kind of leading her there. And there was a core group of people that had moved from Reading out there. And okay. they were part of another ministry and another church. So that kind of became her her second home group, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so she was very connected, very – they were – several of them were her mentors. And it yeah. just – so it was just, yeah, really strong relationships. Sure, sure. And moving here, she knew no one. Yeah. How are
0: you guys dealing with that right now? Like how how do you – over the last uh, couple of years. H- how do you work through that and try to uh, come to terms with that or just you know, counseling or anything like that with it?
1: Sure, it's, um, it was hard timing having a baby right. in November of 19 and then with a pretty, pretty challenging few months right after that, followed up quickly by COVID and everything that shut everything down And so it's really just been, it's kind of put that place on hold. Mm. You know, it's only been recently that we've actually started getting out and doing things again. And um, so hopefully soon, she'll be able to make more connections. Yeah, Yeah. Um, We have made a few friends through starting off with, you know, the wives of a few of the guys here. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, hopefully, we'll continue to actually branch out and be able to start going to church regularly, and sure. hoping that we can kind of start cultivating that
0: yeah. new community here. It's really, a strange time to to do that, <laughs> to make that kind of a significant move. Yeah. Um. And if you're trying to get plugged in when you're not allowed to go out, that's, that's right. yeah, that's yeah, that'd be really hard. I hadn't really considered that there, but um, well, uh, yeah, well, anybody that is prayer warrior or anything out there and wants to, mm-hmm. you know, pray for you guys to, you know, on that transition still. Cause that's, mm-hmm. you know, even two years in, it's it, still working on that for sure. Totally. So, yeah, well, I want to back up um, and and kind of go through some of your, your history mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, you've got quite a bit of story here. You were sharing with me before we uh, did this interview and um, I want to just preface um, some of our conversation here a little bit Um that, um, there, there is, I, I'll call it sensitive, mm-hmm. uh, subject matter, um, that we'll get into here. Um, and I just, I want to encourage everybody that is, is listening or watching here, um, to just maintain, uh, open mind, uh, grace, mm-hmm. um, and just, uh, we, we've had this um, chalkboard up here at the office in fact this is how we mm-hmm. even started this conversation we, we started campaign love above all and, and really the idea uh, behind love above all it's it's love above all the things that get in my way of loving fully of loving deeply yeah. um, what what is getting what, what's a barrier what's in the way there um, Another way to think about it is actually actively thinking of the other person mm-hmm. as more important than I am, mm-hmm. as well. Um, doesn't matter what the what they've been through, what they've done, uh, any of that. That's inconsequential mm-hmm. uh, for how I should love you right. and and how I interact. So I just want to share that, and um, yeah, from from that campaign, love above all uh we we found out a little bit of your story um and or at least I did and um and I'm very thankful that you are willing to to share so um, I don't know where you'd like to start um, but um I, I don't know if you want to start back at childhood or work your way back from anywhere, but however you want to kind of direct in your story,
1: sure, I think let's kind of go chronological, okay, that'll help me stay a little organized, yep. And I really appreciate what you said about, you know, the love above all campaign. When I heard that that was our our next goal of of just how to communicate our ideals to the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it, you're absolutely right. It's important to always know that we are to be loving others, and to have that kind of standard of we're going to love above whatever it is that we see them struggling with. Mm-hmm. The other flip side to that is that also means that we're going, we need to be open to receiving love in that way as well. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the greatest challenges that I actually had. Hmm. Obviously, everybody, I, I mean, I struggled with loving anyone else also, but I also very much struggled with the receiving of love. And I didn't actually necessarily believe that I was. As lovable as I was told I was hmm. um, so and I think it 's really important part of my story for for everyone to know that that we are called to love and we are also called to be loved, and that both are very active in our walk and so the reason I say that is because my very very young i learned through difficult experiences and through abusive situations that my love and my worth was contingent upon what someone else decided it was. That my identity to that person was solely based on my utility. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hardest things for a child to, to learn and then have to grow through and unlearn eventually. God promises us that we are not loved because we are tools. He says we are, he talks about cool language about us being you know, pots in his hands, yeah. but he makes it very clear that our value does not come because we're a pot. Our value comes because he loves us as that pot. Mm-hmm. And so our identity is built on who loves us and why, they say they love us so i'm going to use the lord as my example of how to love and that's what i didn't learn from early childhood so some of the types of abuse that i experienced were things like um, neglect uh, and actual physical and sexual abuse so when a child goes through those especially before age seven they come to believe that they are there for one purpose, and that is to serve someone else's desire. And so from from that very early age of five, six years old to all the way to around 12, 13 years old, my core identity, what I believed about myself, was that I was a tool. And I wasn't a tool in God's hands. I was a tool in someone else's. And I didn't realize, you're, I, was a, I was an itty-bitty little booger, right? I didn't know what was going on, but I, I knew that I was in the midst of something that was dark and confusing and sad and depressing. And I, I actually was, was physically and sexually active from 6 to 12 years old and sought out partners and sought out relationships, that it was just a very, very awful, confusing dynamic. But again, if my identity was I was a tool in this particular way, then there was only one thing I could do to satisfy my need for self-worth, I thought, right? Did it satisfy you at any point? No. And that was the really, that's why by the time I was 12 and 13, I mean, I was depressed. I was... I was deeply sad, I was ashamed, Um, I had had hurt others in my behaviors, I was hurt by others through my behaviors, I was no longer simply a victim, now I was also a victimizer, I mean it was just a rough place to be 12 or 13 years old, and I didn't know what love was going to do about that. Um, I had made a confession of faith at seven years old. I believed that Jesus was my Savior. With my mouth, I would confess that, but my heart didn't believe it. And so around 12 years old, after living that for six solid years, I opened up to my mom for the first time and said, Hey, Mom, I've been sexually active which kind of took her aback. She's like thinking you're you're 12. And I told her about a specific area of activity. I didn't tell her about everything that was really going on. And so it was kind of a start of confession. Say, hey, I, I need love here. I, I'm hurt and I don't know what to do. I'm going to reach out to you because you're my mom. She didn't really know what to do either. And So from about 12 to 15, I walked a journey of of trying to find what my identity was in Christ because I had realized that I had taken on an identity that was labeled with sexual terms, and I had done that. I had labeled myself in that way, but I started to realize that that wasn't my core identity, My core identity was I was a child of God, loved by him, adopted into his family, by his choice, not by mine. And that truth finally kind of started sinking into my heart, and I realized that I could be loved for who I was outside of what I did. So part part to help kind of understand what's going on here, I was homeschooled from second grade all the way through high school graduation, and I was very self-directed in my education. As long as I met the, the core things that were required, mm-hmm. I could study however much more I wanted in any given area. So I started just diving into, into the Bible and then into philosophy and theology, and it I was just, mom was like, yeah, whatever you want, just go. My dad had a fantastic library, and I was reading everything from, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, Tale of Two Cities, Francis Schaeffer, Plato and Aristotle. It didn't matter. Anything I could get my hands on, I was reading it. And I came to realize through studying truth that God's word said, I was loved before the foundation of time. And that he actually knew me and cared about me before I ever had a conscience and before I ever had a use, he loved me. So all of a sudden, this you know, little teenager, my geeky self, started believing that he could be loved and that he was lovable and could also love. And I think that's why Scripture's clear that you love because Christ loved you first. It sets up that proper flow of how love actually works so that it allows us to be, you know, responsive with our love. And I, that those truths were blowing my little, you know, 14 and 15-year-old mind. And all the while, my friends are, you know, hooking up, having their little little boyfriend, girlfriend types of, you know, teeny bopper romance things, and I was just completely not even there. I had no no interest, no desires. Even my attitude sexually was completely different from my peers. I was what would be considered asexual at the time. Okay. So I went from being actively bisexual from six to 12 years old to asexual from 12 to about 15 years old. And it was just all about a reset. The Lord was like, okay, I'm going to wash this away from you. We're going to start working on this over here. I understand your shame and your pain and your your sad and your guilt and your depression and your suicidal ideation and all the other bad things that you've been thinking and feeling. I get you. I love you. It's okay. We're here. It's okay. And I'm going to start helping you walk towards something else. And that's really what Fifteen sixteen was a pivotal time. That's when I started working. Um, my family was coming apart at the seams at that point. Um, my parents were separated when I was fourteen. Um, they were in active separation and later divorced on my eighteenth birthday. That was that was my birthday present. Wow. Um, and in that four that like three year period from about fifteen to eighteen, I got my first real job on the farm and I graduated from high school at the same time, I had all my credits fulfilled. So my mom was like, okay, you're done with that. You need to go out in the world and take care of yourself at this point. So I did, started working the job on the farm and that's where I started actually creating things with my own hands and seeing the crops growing and being told by a man, good job or bad job. I mean, it was actual good, like constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. That boss from that farmer to this day is one of the most pivotal figures in my life. And I still talk to him, I still work with him, but he became the embodiment of what a good man could do and be. And I started modeling my thoughts in my life after him because I had never had the good example from my own father. He became a model and he was perfectly timed. The Lord knew, wow. knew who he had, was gonna put in my life. So eight years I did that. And I mean, that's when I had my first exposure to commercial trucking and we started a company and, and I managed a company and I mean, it was fantastic. And then we did other things as well, but I really became a man. I knew I was a man, no longer was I this. My identity was not found in my sin or in my pain, or in my sadness, or depression, or any other label I wanted to put on myself, my identity became a man after God's own heart. My boss's name was David, so who else to model after, right? (laughs) So I can be Christopher, Christ bearer, learning to be a man after God's own heart, and I can live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God and to others and to myself. And no longer did I need to be known as this hurt person or hurting person, this person who had damaged other people. No longer was that my identity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I could be a son and a, and you know a husband and someday a father, and, and I started believing all those things. and here we are, thirty eight years old, and I I have a beautiful wife and an amazing little son. And uh, it, looking back on all of that journey, I'm like, wow, you know, that was quite a valley of the shadow of death to walk through. Yeah. But here I am on the other side, starting to see the, the bright sky. And I can say, man, thank you for, thank you, Lord, for bringing me through that. Yeah. And here I have great people to work with, people who are willing to ask questions, willing to be challenged, willing to be open, willing to actually figure out how to truly love above all, because mm-hmm. we can use that as a slogan all we want, but if our actions don't speak as loudly or louder than our words, then it won't, it, it won't be a campaign that'll accomplish anything. It'll just be one more piece of noise. Yep. And, but I believe with us that we actually want it to be successful, and we want to be the people that can really say we want to love above all. And that's why I'm happy to be here. That's why I'm happy to work for Newsbum. That's why I didn't want to leave the company when I had to make the choice to, you know, to come off the road. And it's why I'm grateful that I've been able to serve here and work here, and, you know, why it's a pleasure to you know, be in management now, Mm -hmm. to be able to try to, to impart whatever I have, because now I'm a shepherd, you know, we just weren't through the book about how to be a good shepherd (laughs) as a manager, and we did that as Mm -hmm. a management team. I'm a shepherd now, so this hurt little boy who learned how to be loved and how to love is now a man, and now he's a shepherd, (laughs) and I, that's amazing to me, Yeah. What a, what a story of just God's love and faithfulness and redemption. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it's I mean, to hear what you have gone through without getting into all of the specifics, because um, I know you there's plenty in there, um, but I don't think that's necessary. Um, but just the, the the story and that journey and um, how it was it's obvious through that story how God was working mm-hmm. through there. Now I want to. I do want to kind of go back and ask just a couple things, just to, for some extra context sure. as well. Um, now you mentioned that when you went to your mom, it was clearly a shock to her. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of involvement, um, if you don't mind sharing, what kind of mm-hmm. involvement did your parents have in in your day to day and just like your your upbringing? How involved were they with you? So. And, and do you have any siblings?
1: I do, yes. Um, so I'm the oldest okay. of three. Um, and then my brother and sister, brother's the middle child, sister's the youngest. Brother's four years younger okay. than me, and then she's another year younger than him. Gotcha. Um, and so mom and dad's interaction with us was, it, it's difficult to to properly, properly quantify partly because both of them were very hurt people themselves Mm -hmm. and had not properly um, engaged in healing. A lot of it was their choice to not. Some of it was just fear. Some of it was they were trying to engage in it, but they just had so much to unpack that they were simply overwhelmed. Because by the time they had me, I was each of their – each of them had been married two times before then they married each other so they were each other's third marriage well wow. um my dad never had kids in the prior when i was his very first kid so he was in his early 30s early to mid 30s when he had me sure he had plenty of baggage at that point and he had a very hard time being honest about it and, and really being able to face it and he had a hard time believing that he was lovable and so he never really recovered from a lot of his pain. And that was very much reflected in how he dealt with us. Mm-hmm. He was scared to death of being too close because if he was close and present, then he had to be present with his pain. So when he was present with us, he was present with his pain and he couldn't take that. So his choice was to be less present um, emotionally and, and Spiritually, mom on the other hand, she tried her best to be as present as she could, um, but she had quite a few things working against her, and to this day, she has a lot of those same challenges. And so, my expectation of her abilities for certain things was pretty low—low low as a child, and and you know, reasonably low even to this day. And it's it's because to expect more would be unkind. Hmm. Um, so what that means is I was in I was in an environment where I was not protected. I was not looked after. My heart wasn't prepared and I was vulnerable. And I that vulnerability is my parents responsibility. And it was it was we've not been able to fully rectify that situation. My father passed away in 07 and my mom's done her very best since then to try to make amends, but I was vulnerable because of them not doing what they needed to do, and then also they weren't very responsive once I said, "Hey, this is going on with me." I never told my dad until much later, uh, but my mom she just there was only so much she was going to be able to offer so it it was my healing didn't come through them mm-hmm. really
0: so when you part of the reason I'm asking that too then is. Do, do you think that experience played a factor in in your um, determination to be at home when your son was born mm. and to be off the road?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am i I promised I would be present, basically, um, because that was so pivotal to me. The lack mm-hmm. of it was so pivotal. So if I was going to bring a, a, cute little guy into the world, then I was going to be there for him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So, so it's a tough, <laughs> tough conversation. And what I, what I hope from this is that this can be an encouragement mm-hmm. to someone else. I I, I think yeah. in talking with you, you, that's your hope as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we look at, um, like your parents who struggled as well to um, deal with the issues, mm-hmm. um, and and try seek the proper help. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you? How would you encourage somebody that is going through something, or knows somebody has a family member that is struggling, but is? Maybe just really struggling. To, maybe they're in that denial or just, mm. you know, helpless. How would you
1: direct them? What would you what would you say to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, when you're confused about anything, it doesn't really matter what the confusion's caused by. But when you're confused by anything, it's so hard to see up to know which direction is up. Hmm. Um, I remember the story at the very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is in the Slough of Despond and he feels so stuck that he can't see any way out and he believes he's about to drown. And the thing that was the catalyst for his survival of that moment was the evangelist walking over to the edge of the Slough and basically looking down going, what are you doing down there? Why are you stuck, you know? And Christian's like, why don't you just help me get out? Well, of course, the evangelist is, is a Christ figure in the story, and I found it super interesting that Christ's first instinct in the story right. was to not jump into the slough, he didn't do that. He also didn't just automatically throw a rope or something right off the bat. First, he was like, what are you doing? The reason I believe he did that was because he was getting Christian to look up. Recognize his position. Recognize his position. Now he has a point in space and time that he can focus on, and nothing else may make sense at that moment, (laughs) but he does. He can see him, and it's up. That's the direction he knows he needs to go. And that's what Christ did is he said, focus on me. That's what the evangelist basically did in that story. Focus on me. And that's a theme throughout scripture that, you know, a man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different times where Mm -hmm. God basically says, focus on me. So when we're confused, when we're hurting, when we need help, I think the first thing we need to do is focus on Christ focused outside of ourselves get out of the place where we are just frozen in our own agony and start looking at a place where we can see perspective where we can gain something that's more absolute than our own pain which is very subjective so first it's it's seek out a place a focal point that's that absolute and second you have to be willing to be vulnerable again. That is one of the hardest things you can ask someone who's gone through any kind of abuse. That's one of the hardest things you can ever ask them to do. And there is nothing more necessary. Hmm. So my encouragement is to anybody who's hearing this is, if you've been through something that you feel shame, fear, deep sadness, judgment, any of those things, then that's an area you need to be vulnerable about. You need to be vulnerable with Jesus Christ, and you need to be vulnerable with one or two people who can be trusted in the role of helping you see your true value. And because without that perspective and without that, that safe love, that safe haven, then you're not going to be able to walk out of where you're at, out of that dark valley. Mm -hmm. So seek perspective, seek those safe havens. And then I would say, and be vulnerable with that, be honest about it. And then third, I would say that have hope, have hope. Um, it's okay to actually believe it's going to be okay. Um, I am a living testament to that. And I've met many other people who've walked through similar paths to mine or even worse, I would say. And they've come out of it believing that they are a child of God and that they can love and that they are lovable. Mm-hmm. And so there is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I promise it's not the, the engine light that's going to smash you. I really do believe that it's sunlight down there and it's worth pursuing. Yeah. In
0: perspective of, of Love Above All, when you were walking through, um, well, when you were in your adolescent years there, um, before uh, you know, hitting that 13 mm-hmm. you know, mid-teens, and then that point through that, were there points that you felt judged did, did anybody um, – now, I don't know how open, you know, you were with anybody and how, how much anybody knew about your activities and anything like that. But um, did you feel that way at any point, judged or um, looked at differently?
1: So I never was just open – I didn't just broadcast myself to the world. I didn't, the identities that I was, was living under what I was essentially calling myself was not something I made publicly declared. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the reason for that was because I was still hiding in shame, Mm -hmm. Um, but part of it was my personality. I didn't want anybody to know. It didn't seem like they needed to. Um, but once I started kind of reaching out and realizing that I needed help, I had to be honest about what it was and what I was dealing with. So when I did reach out to a couple of people in the beginning, uh, my mom was really the first and then there were one or two in between that and my farm boss when I was 20, Um, I wound up actually telling him what had been going on for you know all those years and kind of where I was with it at the moment. <laughs> and that's a that was a, quite a story. Um there weren't a lot of people that I told. So the ones that I did, I was very selective, I was careful, and I actually didn't feel a lot of judgment from any of them. Um some some like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that looks. <laughs> sure, right. Sure. Um but nobody who really I was like, wow, I, I don't ever want to talk to you again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm glad
0: that that's the case. Um, and I, I'm, I'm imagining now, obviously, I've not been in your shoes, um, but especially going um, to sometimes the people you know and then um, to a church, you know, a pastor, whoever, um, to let them know. Or, tell, or ask for help mm-hmm. with that it is a really vulnerable position to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I would think walking into that, that y- you wouldn't know how, how anybody's going to respond to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that vulnerability, that fear, that is probably a step that a lot of people have to get past Yeah, too. For sure. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm going to – uh, Jim Ravel is our, um, our chaplain here at mm-hmm. Um And uh, I know he had provided me with some information, a resource for uh, counseling um, uh, through Focus on the Family, who is a, 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 a organization that NewsPom supports as well, if you mm-hmm. weren't aware of that. Um, but I think uh, somewhere there they do have a resource for finding uh, counselors in your area that are biblical – counseling services. Um, so we'll, we'll look that up and, and try mm-hmm. to link that into, um, this post as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would definitely encourage, and, and it regardless, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, um, sexual identity and abuse or anything like that, or, um, you know, there's, there's every, and say everybody, a lot of people deal with all kinds of things, de- mm-hmm. depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, there's there's all kinds of things like that that need um, some sort of you know help from the outside. Like Absolutely. you you're not going to be able to do it on your own. No. Um, and I don't you wouldn't be here trying to do everything on your own uh, to this point. So um, highly encourage um, that you you seek that out. Mm-hmm. Um, the sooner the better. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But um, Chris, are you would would you be open to uh, people, you know, sharing anything with you, if they just want to, if they feel like led Absolutely. to just open up or whatever, would that be? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, we're not going to give out Chris's information separate here, but I mean, if you know how to get a hold of them, mm-hmm. uh, you're welcome to do that. Uh, and we'll also, we'll, we'll keep a link for our um, general incoming uh, messages to marketing at com. It's just a few of us that even get to see that. But uh, if you wanted, you'd, you'd be able to do that too. But, mm-hmm. um, so, We've been in the deep stuff mm-hmm. and it's been very valuable. I want to, and, and we've actually also gotten on a good high note in there too. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, this again, story of redemption. That's right. Um, and it's incredible to see then where you are. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's just neat to see. To, mm-hmm. to I, I, Somebody asked me what my story is. I don't have a, no, not that I want that to be my story. Okay. (laughs) Um, And I, I I don't think you'd wish that story on anybody either. Mm -hmm. Um, I I always feel like, I don't I don't have a story. I don't really have Mm -hmm. anything that's certainly not interesting. I don't feel like or anything, Uh, but it's really neat to hear um, Mm -hmm. somebody that's been through that and that it's not impossible Mm -hmm. to do uh, because I think we can certainly look that way like Christian and the, Mm -hmm. they're stuck Mm -hmm. and it's like, I can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So um, I want to. You gave me your resume and everything and all your work stuff here and everything. Mm-hmm. I would like. Um, well, I, actually, so I look through here and you've done. You haven't just been driving, mm-hmm. um, you've done different stuff. I even see, you know, um, surgical assistant in here, mm-hmm. um, insurance producer, administrative consultant, uh, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, pick out some highlights for me. Okay. What, 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 what what are some things that stick out or maybe were impactful for you or just fun times or something?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, um, I was 20, yep. 20 years old and uh, we just finished up harvest. So this was 2003, just finished up harvest. And I walked into the office, so we're talking, let's say November 1st, walk into the office um, on a Monday morning, and I'm expecting the boss to tell me, because I've been working on the farm for four years at this point, I'm, I'm expecting the farmer to say, okay, we're going to work on this particular piece of equipment this winter, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. And so I walk in, and I'm like, okay, so what are we doing? And he's like, well, I want to start a trucking company. Well, actually, check that you're going to start a trucking company for me. Here's a checkbook, and here's three phone numbers. I want it operational with full authority, and and I have seven drivers in mind. I want it done and ready to go by January 30th. So November 1 to January 30th.
0: It's about 60 days. You're good.
1: Yeah. So for, uh, November. I, so so a little months. bit more. Yeah, three months. Three months. So I kind of look at them, and I'm like... uh. I have zero clue what you just said. (laughs) And I have zero clue what you want me to do here. And he's like, it's okay. You'll figure it out. Because you didn't have any trucking experience at this point. I knew how to drive a truck. Okay. Right? Because I learned that on the farm. Yeah. But I had zero commercial experience. I had no idea what IFTA taxes were or anything (laughs) in that or whatever. Right? I had zero clue. (sighs) Well, we had a fully functional trucking company by January 30th. And I did everything everything for the company by hand. I did all If to taxes by hand, payroll tax by hand. I did everything by hand for all seven units. Um, I had a system that I put together. I had to create the whole entire thing. He told me he refused to buy me any computer programs. All he would get me is a computer with internet access so that we could look at the DAT board. So the only loads we pulled were off the DAT board. So we're talking the crumbs of the crumbs of the crumb loads is what we were usually left with. <laughs> and so for the first quarter, we had another an, an ex-driver who wanted to, to try to be a uh, dispatcher. He was finding the loads for the first quarter. At the end of the first quarter, the f- farmer came to me and he's like, well, Chris, hey, good news and bad news. Bad news is I'm firing that guy and putting him back out on the road. Good news is I've got you. <laughs> 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 so, so, which means now not only was I doing all the administration, but I was going to be doing all the load finding and dispatching too. Yeah. So I said, my first question to him was, do I get a raise? And he said, <laughs> No. And that was it. That was the, that was the extent of, the of that. that. was the extent of the conversation. So uh, we ran for the whole entire rest of the year. Um, we went from losing money to being profitable. Uh, and in the end of 2004, fuel prices were starting to hit two dollars a gallon for the first time. Brokers were going out of business. It was a real big deal. And he asked me, "Okay, Chris, what do you think we should do? We've got two options. I believe uh, we're either going to scale up or close down. But I'm going to leave the uh, choice to you. So I'm 21 at this point. <laughs> and I had just built this. This was my baby. Wow. Right. And That's a lot of responsibility. So I, 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 thought about it for a little bit, five minutes. That's a long time for me. And I said, we're closing. We're going to get done. We'll get everything closed up first quarter of Oh hmm. five. And he said, okay, we'll do it. Best choice I could have made really the next three years would have been really rough for us. Yeah. Um, so that's my first exposure to commercial trucking. Wow, um, trial by fire. Right trial there. by fire, You want every, and that's a good way to paraphrase just about everything you see on that resume. I had zero firsthand training or preparation for most of those positions. It was, I got hired and I learned on, on job. And so that was a big one for commercial trucking. And then I've done everything from insurance and finance and securities. Uh-huh. I was fully licensed through that. I was administrative assistant. I had a beautiful business idea and I was put out of business by regulatory change in 2008. Mm. Then in 2000, uh, what, 14, 13, 14, somewhere around in there, the surgical assistant, that was actually a mobile veterinary surgical hospital. Okay. And this veterinarian was in middle Tennessee Um, he had the own one of a kind purpose built surgical unit, 45 foot CDL necessary unit. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was huge truck and we would drive it around and park it in a veterinarian's parking lot. And we would deploy this unit and we would do surgeries. And we're talking major surgeries, not spay neuter clinic here. We were doing everything from open heart, cardiac, type of procedures on puppies all the way through, um, orthopedic. And I mean, if a dog got hit by a car, we're putting them back together all the way to tumor removals. So this was high end And what medicine. were you doing? I was the driver and first surgical assistant. He had hired me to be the driver and thought maybe I'd be the scrub tech. He asked me to scrub in with him on the one surgery. And that was it. He was like, okay, I can tell you like this. Do you want to learn? And I'm like, yeah, well, he was a surgeon. I mean, you want to talk about an ego, yeah, right? And he was like, okay, but you need to understand something. If you do it wrong, I'm going to tell you, and I don't care about your feelings in this point. You're going to kill my patient if you do the wrong thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right? So I'm like, okay, yes, sir. (laughs) Well, but I became it. What he said, he'd been in the business for a long time. He said, I was the absolute best surgical assistant that he had ever had. And he trained me himself. And so uh, here I am elbow deep in in these patients that are on, we're talking full anesthesia, just like human. This was a human OR truck that we modified to do surgeries on dogs. And it was fantastic. Best year and a half of probably one of the best of my life. It was fantastic. So I had done insurance and finance and farming and trucking and cause I'd had my CDL at that point. I'd done other types of trucking before. And then I had this cool little experience with this, this business idea. And I was that close to franchising it. Cause that was the other reason why he hired me. He saw my resume. He's like, yeah. I'll tell you what, can you help me franchise this? And I'm like, absolutely I can. So that was the plan. And then he got sick and uh, had to retire early. Uh-huh. And I could not get another surgeon to fill the spot. It didn't matter how many zeros I threw. I couldn't get another surgeon to do it, to kind of think outside of the box and want to do the role. But it was a great little money-making thing in middle Tennessee.
0: That's a neat experience. It was fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yep. A little bit more intense than some others. Yep. Yep. It was very intense. Wow. Yep. And then I went from that into selling mortgages for a year, did that over the phone. I mean, I can't think of how to, two different worlds. Right. Right. And the selling mortgages for a year was the hardest job I've ever done, hands really? down, hardest job. I mean, to be able in 30 seconds to convince a person that you were trustworthy enough to, for them to, over the phone, never see you in person, give you all of their most sensitive personal information and to help them transact the largest business transaction that they usually do in their lifetime. I did that all over the phone.
0: So this was actually with like the, the purchaser, the, the, the homeowner. Yeah. I'm not, not, not like another bank and doing transfer. No, no, I'm cold calling
1: these people. I'm the person you hate at that point. I was the person everybody hated blasting your phone five to six times a day. I had 200 names that I would ring through every day. If I didn't make 300 dials, my manager was on me. I'm that person that you hated. Uh-huh. So that's how the call was set up. You want to talk about crucial conversations? Right. I had 30 seconds to convince a person I was not the devil and then ask them for everything. Everything. So I, I, I'm curious. That was hard. So, so I have never gotten to talk to somebody on that end, I
0: don't think. Like, n- know somebody who's mm-hmm. been on that end of those calls like that. Okay. I mean, we do some cold call sales things sure. and, and recruiting, and whatnot, but that's you know, a little bit different. I mean, th- those are primed sources. Yeah. But typical experience, I mean, I've got to figure at least nine out of 10 calls are probably either click or (laughs) something to that effect.
1: Yes. Yes. Those were the kind ones.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. What was, can can you recall, does any phone call stand out to you?
1: Yeah. Whether good or bad. Absolutely. So... Now, when I say cold call, um, the reason I say that is because at some point, these people put their name. It's like going into lending Tree or right, something. Right, exactly. And, and lending tree yes, yes. But it could have been years prior. Okay. Right. So it may not even be a fresh. So maybe cold, it may not be. Really, exactly <laughs> be right. So I can distinctly remember this call. And I'm, I'm, I go through my normal spiel, and the gentleman on the other end of the line is like, I am not interested in this. Um, He said, I am actually trying to do this right now, but I am not interested. And I'm not interested in doing business with somebody who's gonna blast my phone. I mean, so he was being very forceful. Mm -hmm. And so I just let him talk. Um, We're not encouraged to do that. You're actually encouraged to talk over people, but I never did. Mm -hmm. So I allowed this man to tell me, to tell me what was wrong with what I was doing. And so I let him have the first 30 seconds. And when he was done, (coughs) I said, you know what? I absolutely agree with you. If I were you, I would be hesitant as well to even want to speak to me. And I think that everything you just said is perfectly legitimate. And I stopped and he stopped. And so then he was like, okay, And I'm like, but I tell you what, there is a reason why I called it is because I believe I have something that you need and that I can offer you what no one else can. And he said, okay, because he thought I was talking about a product. And I said, "Um, you can trust me to do what I say and mean what I say and to walk you through this process that I know is stressful to you. At the end of this 45 day period, you'll have exactly what you want, or I haven't done my job. And he was like, okay. (laughs) And I said, so can we get started with making sure that I have your name correct? And I walked right into the sales call from that point and I never left his hand. Wow. So I found out later that he was a pastor that, which is the reason why he didn't just absolutely ball me out. He did ball me out. He just didn't use any curse words. He was nice about it. it. Nicely. Um, But he was a really great guy. He was a really great guy. And I got him exactly what he needed, even though he didn't know he needed it because he thought he wanted this. He was looking for a low rate and this and that, and this and that. And I said, well, you know, you kind of can get that, but not really. How about we do this instead? And he was like, oh, wow, that actually is what I wanted. <laughs> and so the so yeah. the so it became a conversation and that relationship lasted 45 days. I closed the deal and he was a satisfied customer and we never met face to face, but it was a good man. Yeah you know, looking after his business. And I was a good man trying to help him do it. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, getting those cold calls, well, the worst ones right now is I I think twice a day,
0: roughly, I get called to do my, uh, my warranty extension on my car that hasn't had a warranty on it. And I don't know how long, how many miles I'm twice over my mileage of warranty. Yeah. And I I love (laughs) when they tell me this is your final call final right, it's like exactly. please, please please make it my final please call. Please make it my yeah. It never is. No. Uh but uh it's it, it I know that's a tough job and I I try to be gracious. Um Yeah. But there's also points where it's like if you're going to just keep talking over me That's right. and or try to keep pushing I'm like I am just going to end up clicking. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh but uh no good for you hey that's a some different experience there. Definitely. <laughs> so Yep. Um, what would you say at this point, uh, is there any of that? I mean, is it just kind of a collection of all of it that, um, forms, uh, what you do today or, or how you work and operate or, uh, anything specific out of that?
1: For sure. Yeah. So, um, I was telling you earlier before the interview that I used to call myself the, you know, jack of all trades, but master of none. And someone actually called me on that. Not very long, it was probably probably three or four years ago. And it was someone that I love, that I trust. And he said, you know what? I I don't like that statement about you. And I'm like, okay, I just thought it was kind of a joke. And he said, no, self-deprecating humor is really the worst kind. You are not what you are saying you are. And I kind of stood there for a minute and looked at him and he's like, rethink what you're saying. And so I did and was like, wow, wait a minute, you're right. So what I really need to say is something like, how about this? Because I love stories, right? So what about this? Here's an analogy. What if I'm like my Leatherman? And I pulled out my Leatherman and I showed him, you know, it opens up and I've got Leatherman, all the, multi-tool, that's right. Does yeah, and I, it's got, right, the, it's the, got the, the, the blade, little, the saw, the screwdriver, right. yep. the clippers, little, everything. Little scissors, Tweezers. you know, and if you got the Swiss army knife, you got the little toothpick and everything. But the whole point is you've got everything you need for survival, especially if you're MacGyver, you've got everything you need in the palm of your hand. And at any time you can be called on to serve a great purpose. So I'm kind of painting this picture for him and he's like, "Now you're talking. <laughs> Now you're talking." So instead of being a master of none, you are uniquely positioned to be effective anywhere you that the Lord places you. And I'm like, "Whoa. Now that's cool. <laughs> I I can that I can buy that. I can buy that. Thank you very much." And so So that's just a reframing and I can look at my resume and I can listen to my story that I just told and I can realize that that's exactly what the Lord has done with me is I am not the best truck driver there's ever been. I am not the best mortgage consultant there's ever been. Insurance, farmhand, whatever. There's 20 different labels probably in that resume. I'm not the best of any of them, but I was amazing at all of them. And the Lord used me in those times to touch people, to impact people and they impacted me and I became this like multicolored person. (laughs) And it's so neat to be comfortable, to walk into a room. I can sit down, I just did this. I can sit down with an orthopedic or a plastic surgeon and I can ask them which suture they used. In their procedure. And they look at me, and go, What? What What do you care? <laughs> no, seriously. Was it PDF? Was it, you know, it that P- you know, what? Tell me, what kind did you use? And was it Vicral? You know, I mean I had to probe. And they're like, Yes, actually I used PDS and the number five. But then you know, five minutes later I can walk in and I can talk about engine timing. Or I can go over here and I'm like, that's super neat. Mm-hmm. I can, I can have a relationship with anybody. And, and I love that. I love that about myself. Yeah. And that's born out in my resume. But so yeah, I'm, I'm like a Leatherman. Yeah.
0: But you are so much more than your resume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that honestly, the, the way this whole conversation between the two of us even started was based on um, you writing the word up on, on a board Mm -hmm. that said identity in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you start out actually, in fact, I'll I'll just be very open here. You wrote gender confusion Mm -hmm. on the board. I came back and I said, let's change that to identity just for different reasons. And I won't get into all of that here. Mm -hmm. Reasoning on that. Um, but then as you tell your story, it's, 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 it is about how you're identifying yourself. It's not about the gender. Ultimately, ultimately, I mean, we could get into the, all of that, sure. but you know, you were struggling to figure out who you were, mm-hmm. where you belong, what your place was, yeah. um, who you are as a person and what your value is. That's right. And, and so that's. It, it all goes to, to, to that, where you, where you actually find your identity. That's right. And, and where that's placed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's really cool. Uh, just, you know, that, that, that you can say that now. Mm-hmm. That, that you can um, come through that, say, Jesus is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's awesome. Absolutely. That's awesome. So I want to wrap up here. I've got a couple of decks here of cards. Uh, They're special cards. We've never done this uh, before on Terminal Exchange, so this is kind of a a first. So we're going to see how this goes. It may completely flop. We'll see. Okay, so you know I'm going to pull into this deck here. I think what I'll do is I'll pull out a few cards here. Okay. Uh, Let me just do a quick look. Um, uh, uh, Okay. Okay. Yep. There we go. And yeah, uh, we don't use that one. Um, <laughs> that could be interesting. Uh, okay. There we go. That one actually seems appropriate. So um, I'm going to give you three cards. Here. Okay. All right. And you know, what? actually I was going to have you pick, but I think we can probably go through these pretty quick. Okay. Let's just do them. Okay. All right. So let's start with, have you ever licked a battery? Yes. What was that experience like? I've never done it, actually. Believe we're it or not. shocking. <laughs> All right, and <laughs> Do where, I need my own where's, drum? Where's, where's the, <laughs> <Did> drum, you... <laughs> the drum for that? There we go. <laughs> um, when you were a kid, uh, did you have any posters on your wall? I did. What, what were they?
1: I had a, a P38, a B17. Um, I had uh, Batman. I, were so, those, were those airplanes? Yes, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, World War II era <laughs> P38 was a fighter B17 do, bomber. Wanna... Yes, yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. And you said
0: Batman and Batman. Uh, so, so Batman or Superman? Okay, I, I knew the answer. I'm, we're on the same page. Yeah. Okay. If 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 we were to have show and tell here at the office, mm-hmm. uh, what what thing would you be proud to display? What would you bring? My Leatherman. Really? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Has it been the same Leatherman or have you upgraded
1: or had to replace? Only, I've only had one replacement. So the first Leatherman that I had, um, I had for many years and then I had another one gifted to me. Um, and I've had that one since. So I had that one for more than 10 years at this point.
0: Most often used tool in there.
1: Um, the pliers and then a knife. Okay. Yeah, but then a saw not, off, not fall off after that one. I've used that quite a bit. Does yours
0: have tweezers? Not this one. Um, yep. What is the least – can you describe the least used tool in there? You probably got, what, a dozen to 18 mm-hmm. different things in there?
1: Um, I would probably say the small slot head screwdriver. Hmm. It's probably the one I've used the least.
0: I even once – We probably shouldn't share this. I didn't have one on me, but Brent Martin, in operations there, uh, we needed a can opener. Mm -hmm. And he had, I I don't even think it was actually a a complete multi-tool, but it actually had the can opener in the Mm -hmm. knife Mm -hmm. or whatever. And um, it's a manual thing, and Mm -hmm. you just
1: go through and- I've used mine a lot.
0: And uh, it worked. It did the Mm -hmm. trick. It does. uh, Got the job done. So Yep. Hey, Leatherman. That's right. Multi-tool. Leatherman.
1: Multi-tool. I'm for the win. What, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> many, many cans of tuna were opened that way when I was in the middle of a field.
0: They don't make cans of tuna anymore. I'm sure they do. But they make them, in, they put them in packages that peel open and
1: yeah.
0: everything. Yeah. They're making everything too easy now. I know. Yeah. It's not the same. Our kids will not know how to use one of those manual can openers.
1: No, my son will.
0: Good. Good yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, I try to keep sharp objects away from my kids as much as <laughs> possible. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> oh goodness, Chris, thank you so much uh, for You're sharing welcome. with us. Um, I do want to leave you with, uh, send you off with okay. uh, a little gift uh, from us here. Thank you. Uh, journal book for you to okay. write notes or journal um, thoughts along the way. That is Nussbaum's purpose-driven uh, journal. Okay. And uh, it has our entire uh, kind of Vision of purpose-driven in there as well, um, but thank you so much for Absolutely. for being willing to thank you to be open here, share your story, um, and again uh, we'll share um, information on uh, focus on the family and and the resource there for, for counseling. Um, if even your local church, uh, you know, go go to them if if you're not sure. Otherwise, if you mm-hmm. just need to um, talk to somebody, that's a good place to start too. Mm-hmm. Um, so and. Other than that, uh, Chris has said you're available there. Um, and please know that, you know, we like to have fun here. But really, the, the, the whole reason we even do like these conversations is to talk real life, mm-hmm. uh, to to really um, get to know your story. And maybe that'll be beneficial to somebody else. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you again. And uh, to everyone out there, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And uh, show notes at TerminalExchange.org. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to Terminal Exchange, the official podcast show of Nussbaum Transportation. Nussbaum is an industry leader in over-the-road freight transportation. For more information on NewsBomb's award-winning truckload services and top-paying driving careers, go to newsbomb.com or nussbaumjobs.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Terminal Exchange. New episodes arrive every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts and share a little love by writing us a review. Then, go deeper into each exchange or listen to previous episodes at our podcast page, TerminalExchange.org.